If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. As Pastor Andrew mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday, and it's exciting that we are here uh, today worshiping together on Palm Sunday. Over the last several weeks, we haven't uh, directed our attention during our morning worship services for the season of Lent as we have in the past several years, and that's primarily been because we've been finishing up our series in the beginning, walking through Genesis and the creation account. But I'm delighted this morning to be able to turn to the Gospel of Luke and look at God's Word together. So would you uh, join me in praying as we are ready to receive God's Word? Let us go before God together. Our Father in heaven, as we come to receive your Word this morning, the bread of life, I pray that you would speak to each of us. Pray, Lord, that you would anoint my lips to speak the truth of your word, that you would guard me from error, guard us from hearing an error. And, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Throughout history, kingdoms have risen and fallen. Kingdoms are not eternal. But there is one kingdom that Scripture speaks of which is eternal. And that's the kingdom that Jesus is the king over. And so this morning, I want us to look at this text in Luke chapter 19. And the title of the sermon is The King and His Kingdom. The King and His Kingdom. In verses 11 through 27 of chapter 19, Jesus gives a parable. And in the beginning of this parable, you'll notice verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, we can kind of fast forward through the the rest of the narrative of the Gospel of Luke, and we can think about how this was a common assumption of many of the pilgrims who were gathering for Passover. They thought that Jesus' kingdom was coming, that God was bringing in, ushering the kingdom now, immediately. And part of that kingdom was a political overthrow or overthrowing the political system of the Romans of the day. But that is not, in fact, what is going to happen in the rest of the gospel narrative. And that is not what Jesus is coming to do. That is not the type of kingdom that he is ushering in. And so Jesus tells a parable of the ten minas to speak about entrusting servants with work to do while he goes away and until he returns. And then when he returns, he finds faithful servants and then he finds unfaithful servants. We'll tie that back in a little bit later. But this morning, what I want us to see, what I think Luke is calling us, directing us to see, is that Jesus is the humble, sovereign king who invites us to enter his kingdom through repentance and joyful worship. Jesus is the humble, sovereign king who invites us to enter his kingdom through repentance and through joyful worship. Joyful worship is important for the Christian. As we, as we see in the text, we'll see in a moment, how joyful worship is important. Well, begin reading with me in verse 28 and follow along. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untied and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city. and He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Verse 28 clues us into the setting. Jesus was going ahead to Jerusalem. His eyes are fixed on, on his path as he journeys toward the cross. In fact, Luke has hinted since chapter 9 six different times that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And so here in this text, we have the final scene of Jesus heading into the holy city. Now, I alluded to it a moment ago that this was the national Jewish holiday of Passover. The Passover celebration was, was fast approaching. The city of Jerusalem was all the buzz with pilgrims gathering from all around. And they were gathering to celebrate how God had delivered them mightily from bondage to Egypt when they were walking out through the Exodus. And it was during Passover that messianic expectations began to run, began to ran, run higher than usual. And in addition to this, they were... They were religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, conspiring together how they might rid themselves of this problem, Jesus, who had amassed such an incredible following. It seemed like everywhere they went, they were losing those who followed Judaism and those returning to Jesus. Well, it's against this backdrop that Luke narrates the story the approach of the narrative. And it's against this backdrop that we see Jesus entering the holy city. And in the Christian, Christian tradition, we call this Sunday Palm Sunday because it's the Sunday where all the pilgrims are lining along the way and they're cutting palm branches. And other, other gospel accounts tell us they're cutting palm branches, they're shouting Hosanna, and they're laying them, and they're laying their coats, and they're laying everything, and they're waving these palm branches before Jesus as he's entering in to the city. Well, the text tells us that he's in Bethany and Bethphage, the, the neighboring villages that were on top of the Mount of Olives. 
And so what Jesus has to do is he has to travel down the descent through the Kidron Valley and then up the ascent of the hill to Jerusalem, which is easier said than done. Geographically, his descent from the Mount of Olives would begin at 2,600 feet, and then he would descend into the Kidron Valley, which is about 400 feet below sea level, and then he would journey up, climb up some 2,500 feet above sea level to reach Jerusalem, the city. But Luke intends for us to learn more than a geography lesson. Luke is making a theological point in his gospel. It's the point about Jesus' kingship. And until now, Jesus has intentionally withdrawn from the public eye. But the time has arrived, the time planned from before the foundation of the world. History was, was ripe and bursting at the seams. It was pregnant for this moment. It was pregnant for the birth of triumph over death leading to new life the king is approaching jerusalem and in the first scene this morning we see that the king is here the king is here so one of the questions we have to ask is what do we learn about jesus's kingship what is luke teaching us about jesus's kingship i think luke is careful to show us that jesus is the sovereign king in control of his destiny. Jesus is the sovereign king in control of his destiny. Notice how the text flows. In verse 29, Jesus dispatches the disciples. And in verse 30, he tells the location, even the condition of the cult that he sends them to find. In verse 31, he tells them what they need to say. And in verses 32 through 34, he gives us the note that the scene unfolds just as Jesus has said. The disciples obediently follow Jesus' commands. They find the colt there. And in verse 35, they bring the colt back. They throw their cloaks on the colt so Jesus can sit on it. Verse 36, they begin laying their coats on the ground as Jesus is riding the colt. And in verse 37, it tells us that as he's drawing near all the, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples, they begin praising God and rejoicing with loud voices for the miracles which they had seen. This is a tremendous scene. We can imagine the throngs of people laying coats on the road, shouting and declaring praise. The other gospel accounts tell us they were cutting down palm branches, laying them down, and shouting Hosanna, singing praise to God. They were remembering the miracles that Jesus had done. If you read back through Luke's gospel, you see all the different miracles uh, healing of the, lep of the lepers and of the lame, forgiving sins, raising the dead to life, calming the raging sea, showing not only is he powerful over death and over sickness, he's also powerful over nature, commanding demons to flee, multiplying food to feed thousands. These were the things that all the pilgrims that were there had watched Jesus do. They had seen him perform these great miracles. And now they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, verse 38. The whole scene is rich with Old Testament imagery. His entrance on a cult fulfills the Old Testament prophecy, as we see in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Their words of praise are taken from an Old Testament text. It's called the Hallel. From Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, the pilgrims would, as they're journeying to Jerusalem for the Passover, they would begin singing and and reciting these psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, as they're ascending the Mount of Jerusalem. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. You know what the pilgrims are doing here? You know what these worshipers are doing? They're declaring that Jesus is the promised king who comes with the authority of God himself. And in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, Malachi says, Behold, he prophesies, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, the pilgrims, the people who are there with Jesus, they're partly right in understanding that Jesus has come to deliver them from bondage. I mean, the whole scenario, the whole scene points to this understanding that Jesus has come to deliver them from bondage. But it's not bondage from Roman rule. Jesus has come to deliver humanity from a greater bondage, the bondage of sin and the tyranny of of death. And as, as a sovereign king in control of his destiny, he's heading to the cross to suffer death. And it's through the cross that Jesus drinks the cup of our condemnation for sin. And it's through the cross that Jesus enters death and then raises from the dead triumphantly on the third day. And Jesus does this so that all who believe in him can enter into his glorious kingdom and enjoy God forever. And so Jesus has come to bring salvation for sinners. But not only does Luke show us that Jesus is the sovereign king in control of his own destiny, he shows us that Jesus is a a humble king of peace whose praise cannot be silenced. His royal entrance on a donkey is a contrasting picture with the warrior kings of the day who triumphantly enter cities on their war horses. You know, this speaks as much about Christ's humility as it does about the kingdom of God. Jesus is unlike any earthly king and his kingdom is unlike any earthly kingdom. He's a humble king, a humble king of peace. And Jesus, the humble king, enters Jerusalem, the holy city, on a humble colt, carrying the weight of the world's sin on his back. And so Paul speaks of Christ's humility in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, this is what Jim read earlier, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This speaks of the work of Christ, the humble work of Christ, 
that he would leave the glory of his eternal abode in heaven with the Father, and that he would become man, take upon himself flesh, and then serve his creation by paying the penalty for their sin. See, Jesus comes as a fulfillment of every nation's deepest hopes, every people's deepest hopes. He answers our longings for a king who can bring peace on earth from heaven itself. Their declaration in verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, is the same declaration that the angels made back in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, at the announcement of Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Listen, it's only when we find peace with God that there can truly be peace on earth. And the peace that comes from God is the peace that comes through Christ. You see, the problem that the nations have is not that they're at war with one another, not even that they have competing interests. The problem that the nations have is that they are ultimately at war with God. And it's through Christ that we are to be reconciled to God. It is through Christ, even as we saw last week, that he reverses this this curse among the nations. There were some who, who couldn't rejoice with the crowd. Verse 39 tells us that the Pharisees told Jesus, rebuke your disciples. But notice in verse 40 how Jesus responds humble. The humble Lord responds with kind of with, with a sovereign certainty. I tell you that if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What I love about that is that creation itself recognizes and is ready to cry out that Jesus is the Messiah. And if people don't cry out, the stones will, he says. And so this is a stinging indictment against the religious leaders. Those who live can't see what creation, even though it doesn't live, sees. Even lifeless creation knows that Jesus the Messiah has come. So friend, is this an indictment against you this morning? That you're being silent instead of praising God. That if we were silent, the very stones would cry out that we in silence refuse to give glory to the Lord of all creation. That we would keep silent and refuse to declare the praise of the Messiah who has come to give his life for the sins of the world. Church, we must not let the rocks cry out in our place. Jesus is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of all of our praise. Their worship of Jesus is is worthy of replicating in our own lives. By laying down their coats, they're showing a willingness to lay everything they have before Jesus. And so as we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question that presses on the pilgrims is the question that presses upon us. Are we going along for the trip, hoping that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? 
Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise? But only as long as Jesus seems to do what, what we want? The steep descent that they take into the valleys and the treacherous uphill climbs of life, they have a way of sorting out our motives. Because we too are pilgrims on a heavenward journey. Are we willing? Are we willing to spread our coats on the road before Jesus? Are we willing to lay everything in our lives before Jesus? Have we laid everything before him? Have we laid our relationships before him, our vocations, my spouse, our children, our lives? As one writer so eloquently put it, are we so ready to do the showy and flamboyant thing, but not willing to follow him into trouble, controversy, trial, and death? We all know how the story unfolds. All of the disciples desert, desert Jesus. Even the 12 closest to him desert him in the moment of greatest trial and struggle. Not only does Jesus, the humble king, embrace us as we bring him our everything in worship, we see kind of the flip side of that in the narrative as well. And the flip side is that through lamentation, Jesus speaks judgment over those who reject him. So Jesus, on one hand, is inviting us as he's embracing his public ministry, heading into Jerusalem. He's inviting us to come to worship, to lay our everything before him. But then through lamentation, Jesus speaks judgment over, over those who reject him. The scene the second scene, he, woe to those who reject the king in verses 41 through 44. This was the point of the parable that he told just before this text in verses 11 through 27 of chapter 19. In verse 27, look at 1927, hear what he says. So we know that he's telling this one reason is because they suppose that the kingdom of God would appear immediately, right? They had this this one mindset about what the kingdom of God would look like. But then verse 27, but as, as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, that standing alone sounds like a pretty harsh judgment, does it not? In fact, if we read several passages in Scripture throughout the Gospel of Luke even, we might say Jesus' judgment is cold and Harsh and be tempted to even paint him as a, a cold and harsh king. But verses 41 and 42 are not as we expect. In fact, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem's rebellion and unrepentance. Look at what it says there in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. it the idea is as, as they're journeying there, maybe they go down into the valley and <clears throat> as they come up above maybe a ridge, the city is there shining. Maybe the sun's hitting it. You kind of picture this, this glorious scene. And in the midst of this great scene, Jesus is just weeping. And this isn't just like a, a tear rolls down his cheek. This is sobbing. We see the, the heart of God here the love and compassion that God has for his creation. 
As Jesus is approaching the city, he weeps. He doesn't weep because of what awaits him in Jerusalem. He weeps over their sin of rejection. His heart breaks over Jerusalem because they missed it. They're blind and complacent people. He weeps over the hardness of their hearts. They're so set on following their own ways that they miss the blessing of of God's visitation. They miss Christ's true identity as Messiah. So Christ's justice isn't cold and detached. His justice is filled with compassion and filled with love. And it's through tears that he weeps over Jerusalem. Earlier in, in, the, in, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Perhaps we need to hear Jesus' words of weeping, the deep lamentation of Jesus with a, a fresh ear this morning. Not only does Jesus say to the city of Jerusalem, not only does Jesus say this to the city of Jerusalem, we need to hear these words in our own lives as if, as if he's, he's saying them to us. Verse 42, we need to hear in Jesus' words a, a compassion expressed over our sinful rebellion, a compassion expressed over our refusal to repent of our sin. Because just as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem's rebellion and unrepentance, I want you to know that Jesus weeps over our sinful rebellion and refusal to repent of our own sin. He weeps over the hardness of our heart. Over the brazenness with which we enter sin and refuse to submit to his kingship and his rule. So church, let us not be like those who reject Jesus' kingship and rebel against his rule. The final two verses ought to serve as a dreadful warning for all of us this morning, especially for those who have sensed God's drawing in your life, but still you're refusing and pushing away. Don't push Christ away this morning. The compassion of Christ is met by his justice. Jerusalem will soon realize that it costs to reject Jesus. There is a penalty for those who reject the Lord. Even though he's compassionate toward us, there comes a time in a person's life where, where rejection of Christ is eternally condemning. As we consider Christ, our humble Messiah, our sovereign king of the universe, we see one who has great, great compassion for his people. Such compassion that he weeps over them, but in the end we must realize his compassion will give way to divine justice. And we need to realize that those who reject him will suffer condemnation and judgment. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that is on Jesus, the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Luke speaks of the judgment that is to come. In chapter 13, when someone asked Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, Jesus will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are eternal consequences for how we respond to Jesus in this life. How does Jesus see you? We might want to ask the question, how do we see Jesus? But I think a better question is, how does Jesus see you? Because ultimately, that's what matters. Does Jesus see you as one who worships and praises him? Does he see you as one who submits to his kingship? Or does he see you as one who rejects? As to one whom he will say, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is the true king, and his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. He has come to set us free from sin and death and to bring us salvation. He is worthy of our worship, of everything that we have, of everything that we can bring to him. And we need to recognize and understand that Jesus is compassionate toward us. He weeps over our sinful rebellion, and he invites us to come to him. He invites us to come and to experience life, experience the new life that comes through him. Jesus is the humble, sovereign king who invites us to enter his kingdom through repentance and joyful worship. So let me ask you this morning. Have you come to a place in your life where you have acknowledged your sin before the Lord and repented of it and confess Christ as Lord if you've recognized this morning that you haven't done that and you sense the Lord drawing you to do that you can do that right where you're at in a moment we're going to have a time of response where we respond to the Lord and we pray and then we sing and worship him and so if that describes you this morning right where you're at you can confess your sin before Jesus, repent of it, and trust him as Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to this king, King Jesus, who has given his life for your salvation. If you have questions about what that means, what that looks like, how to do that, after the service, we're going to be standing, a couple of us will be standing over here by this cross, and we want to answer your questions about what it means to surrender to Christ's kingship. But for others this morning, maybe you're a Christian 
and you've just been struggling in deep ways over a particular sin in your life, I want to encourage you to confess that before the Lord and get help, get accountability from a brother, a sister in Christ to help you walk through the struggle, overcome the struggle that you're walking in. Name the sin before the Lord. Be bold enough to confess it, that you know what it is before the Lord this morning. Maybe, Christian, for you, it just looks like you've recognized that the joy of walking with Christ is not present right now in your life. And maybe that's for, can be for all kinds of different reasons. But maybe for you, it's been a long time since you've had the joyful worship that describes the pilgrims in this text. And for you, you've been convicted of that. And this morning, I want to encourage you to confess that before the Lord and ask the Lord to give you joy in the midst of, of life. Every day doesn't have to be drudgery or drudgery. Wake up in the morning learning to praise God, singing his praise, declaring, <clears throat> declaring his goodness. Maybe for you, it looks like returning to the foundation of your walk with Christ. Kind of coming back to, to the simple step. Step one, wake up, spend time in God's word, pray to him. Just focusing on the foundational elements of your Christian faith. Maybe that's where it needs to begin for you. Whatever the case, I want to encourage us this morning to worship Christ with everything that we have, to lay it all before him. Because when we do, we will not be disappointed with the life that he leads us in. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to worship you or close our time together today worshiping you, pray, Father, that you would speak, encourage, challenge each of us in a way that we need to respond to your word. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen those who are struggling those who are sensing your calling to turn their lives and surrender to you, I pray, God, that you would strengthen them to do that very thing. Father, by your Holy Spirit, work in their hearts and their minds, drawing them to you. What a glorious thing it'll be. And Father, for all of us this morning, as we, as we worship you, we want to worship you joyfully, laying everything before you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?